Welcome to the Kids First Podcast, where every week we talk with education freedom advocates, charter school supporters, school leaders, politicians, and policymakers in South Carolina and around the country. This week, we're honored to have Corey DeAngelis. Corey's a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. He's also the executive director at Educational Freedom Institute, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a senior fellow at Reason Foundation, and a board member at Liberty Justice Center. He was named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for his work on education policy and received the Buckley Award from America's Future in 2020. He additionally received the Future 40 Award from Maverick PAC in 2021 and the OCPA Citizenship Award in 2022. I personally have been following Corey for several years. I enjoy his perspective on educational freedom, his advocacy of putting kids first, and of course, it's an honor to have him join us today. Corey, welcome to the Kids First Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Corey, it is indeed an honor, and I have been following you for for several years now. You speak truth when it comes to educational freedom and school choice for all kids uh, here in the United States, and your advocacy is unwavering. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into the school choice conversation in terms of advocacy and from a policy perspective. Yeah, I actually started as a researcher at the University of Arkansas, where I did my PhD in education policy at their Department of Education Reform. And my first study actually linked the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, one of the longest standing private school choice programs in the country, to adult criminal activity and the likelihood of being involved in paternity disputes later on in life. And we linked students in that program starting in about 1990 and followed them through the age of about 30 and matched them to their Uh, similar peers in the public school system and found large reductions associated with using the private school choice program, large reductions in the likelihood of criminal activity and paternity disputes uh, later on in life. Uh, So I started to research a lot of these non-test score outcomes, including crime, political participation. Another study of mine looked at effects of school choice on mental health improvements. Uh, So I was really interested from the get-go on non-test score based outcomes, which most researchers, they can't get their hands on those data. For other researchers, they believe that test scores are the end-all be-all of education. I felt like there needed to be uh, more uh, added to the conversation. And I started to find out pretty quick, one, I liked research, but two, the peers in the peer review process at the university level were not my friends. They weren't my peers. They were my enemies. And so I was fighting an uphill battle in academia, um, still published over 30 peer-reviewed studies in, in just a few years. But I decided to ultimately go the think tank route. And I'm glad that I did because as, as opposed to being punished for my beliefs about education freedom, I have become rewarded for my beliefs and, and my thoughts in the think tank sphere. And even before that, attended something called a magnet school in San Antonio, Texas, which is a form of school choice. It's still run by the district, but you're not residentially assigned to magnet schools, so they don't have as much monopoly power, and they have a little bit of an incentive to cater to the needs of families. I thought that was a good opportunity for me, and I think other families should have access to more education opportunities. And the money should follow the child. It shouldn't be limited to schools that are run by the government either. You should be able to take your kids' education dollars 
to a public school if you want, a charter school, a private school, or a home-based education option. The money's meant for educating the kid, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution. So that's that my experience there after attending my residentially assigned school all through elementary school, middle school, and actually the magnet school that I ultimately attended in high school was on the physical campus of the school that I was residentially assigned to. And I saw the night and day difference for four years straight. And that had a profound yeah. impact on me. And look, there's no reason why your your child and the money meant for educating your child should just go to one particular place just based on where you live. It's, it's a huge injustice. I mean, families growing up in Texas, and I've heard stories all across the country, routinely lie about their address to get their kids into better so-called public schools just because of this weird situation that we're in where you're residentially assigned to an institution. We don't do that with anything else. I mean, just imagine if we forced low-income oh, families yeah. to take their food stamp dollars to a residentially assigned government-run grocery store. That would be totally ridiculous. We don't do it with any other industry. We shouldn't do it with K-12 education either. Corey, I totally agree. And, you know, I've exercised, I've got three children. I look, I'm a product of our traditional public schools and that worked for me. But for my kids, they needed something different. They're all three different. They learn differently. My oldest daughter, she went straight through traditional public. But when COVID hit, my oldest son, he was going to a traditional public high school down the street. But man, there was no learning going on. And I mean, he literally, I, I could tell was mentally challenged with that situation. He couldn't do sports, band, and all those things. We pulled him out. We sent him to our local parochial school. And then my youngest son, and I talk a lot about Marsh, he has Down syndrome. And the traditional school district would not even meet in person to do his evaluation for kindergarten. We said, no way, we're not going to have him be self-contained because you won't meet with him in person and give him a fair evaluation. We sent him down the street to a religious uh, Christian school. And that worked for about a year, but they just didn't have the ability to support him in the way that he needed. Well, then we transferred him to a local inner city charter school right here in downtown Columbia, Clear Dot Charter School. It has worked fabulous. He is learning. He's included with his peers. He's doing all the things that everybody else said he couldn't do, but it's because I had the ability to make those choices and what we've seen is a lot of families are limited in choices. You talked about district lines. They're trapped. It makes no sense to me that we could have a child that lives on one side of a street and their child has to go to one school that's underperforming and the child across the street can go to a high performing school just in the same neighborhood. So personally, I think we need to get rid of attendance zones and, and district lines and fully have choice across all lines, public and private. And let's don't forget about our homeschool families, which we've mm -hmm. seen that population grow as well. Chris, I like how you pointed out that the public traditional school worked for you, but then the public charter school worked a little better for one of your children. This, this just goes to show you that one size doesn't fit all, that there isn't one best system, public, private, or charter, or otherwise. It all depends on the individual needs of the individual family and student. And with school choice initiatives, whether it's through a charter school law or an education savings account, like South Carolina just passed, the public school is still an option that's on the table and should be on the table and families can still send their children there. It's often just about being in the right fit. A, a, one particular school that could work 
well for one of your kids may not work well for for another one of your children and the charter school may work better so this isn't a us versus them conversation it's not public or district no. versus charter private versus public and in fact the public schools get better in response to competition we've seen evidence of this all across the country there's 29 studies on the subject and 26 of the 29 studies find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice program competition on the outcomes in the public schools too so this is a rising tide that lifts all boats we don't we're not out here to destroy public schools we're not out here to defund them we want to make them better, and this absolutely does that, particularly when you look at how the funding formulas work in these different states. Uh, the, the money that follows the child is usually a lot less than the total amount spent in the public schools. So then what does that mean? Well, the student takes a fraction of the funding, but then the public school gets to keep thousands of dollars for students that are no longer educating. So on a per-student basis, they actually end up with more money uh, per student. So they, they're actually financially better off on a per student basis. And uh, you also pointed out that, you know, COVID kind of opened your eyes for a lot of things in, in the traditional public school. Well, one of the big changes of this whole COVID and the so-called remote learning, which we should have just called remotely learning because there wasn't a lot of learning going on in a lot of cases. But even <laughs> in schools, yeah. even in schools that figured it out, that did a good job for whatever reason, uh, based on math and reading test scores, parents in those same schools who thought that their kids were in great institutions based on their test scores started to see something else was going on. There was another dimension of school quality based on whether the school's curriculum aligned with the family's values. And I think that's mobilized parents all across the country, especially in red states. You know, a lot of the families who said, oh yeah, I know this, you know, critical race theory stuff is happening in the in other schools, but not my kid's school. There's no way it's happening in my kid's school. Families all across the country from all different backgrounds started to see that there was political indoctrination happening uh, in all areas of the country, not just in, in blue cities. And that's woken up a lot of families. And I don't have a I don't have a dog in the fight as to what the curriculum should look like. The problem, however, is that in the current system, it's a one size fits all disaster that by definition is going to fail to meet the individual needs of diverse families who are inherently just going to disagree about how they want to raise their kids. And that's okay. It's okay to live in a society where I want to raise my kids this way. You may want a different set of values for your kids. And I'm not going to try to control what those values are for your kids. But in the current system, that's exactly what happens. You have, whether we like it or not, there's going to be one group of, fa of parents or families or, or even a special interest, a minority of the, of the uh, population, a concentrated special interest group. They're usually the teachers unions that can control how the rest of society's children will be raised for 13 years in the school system. That's woken up a lot of parents, that realization. And now they're pushing back at school board meetings where in a lot of cases, they just get called domestic terrorists from the National School Boards Association, which really pissed off a lot of parents. But they're also pushing back at the ballot box for candidates who support education freedom. And they're pushing for school choice laws. I mean, look, in the past two years alone, we've had a school choice revolution. Six states have gone all in on school choice, allowing every single family to have access to their kids' education dollars. 
South Carolina took a huge step in the right direction recently this year where they established their first education savings account, which is the gold standard of school choice policy. It's the, the purest form of funding students directly. Uh, it's not universal in that it's income targeted, I believe, to 400% of the federal it poverty is. level after three years. You know, it should be available to everybody. We already fund public education for everybody. We don't income cap the public schools, so we shouldn't income cap allowing all families to take their money to the, the education provider of their choosing. But look, this was a huge step forward in South Carolina. It's mostly uh, yeah. victories happening in red states, but North Carolina, which has a red legislature, might also have a big victory this year. They have a universal school choice bill that all of their Republicans have signed on to, which gives them enough uh, votes to override an expected veto from their governor, Roy Cooper, who's a hypocrite on school choice because he sent his kid to private school, which is great. I don't blame him for that. But then to turn around and tell other families they can't have educational freedom for their kids, that's total yeah, hypocrisy. Don't deny it for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've spent a good bit of time in North Carolina myself. I'm a South Carolinian, but we have been following what's going on just north of us. Um, and look, um, while while there's still work to be done on the ESA bill in the future to continue to expand it to all kids, I'll take the the I'll take the win that we got last week. I thought that was huge. Um, I like to tell people that in South Carolina, this is the first time that that we've had total alignment among our state's leaders when it comes to educational freedom. We have our new state superintendent Ellen Weaver, who I know you know. Um, we've got Governor Henry McMaster. We've yeah. got, you know, Chairman Shannon Erickson in the House Education Committee. And then we've got Chairman Henry over on the Senate side. And and then when you look at our speaker, Merle Smith, and what he did last year in putting charter schools in the funding formula for the first time ever. I mean, Corey, we used to have to beg every year for money for charter schools. Nobody else had to do that in South Carolina. The traditional schools, they just open the doors, kids show up, they leave, whatever. I mean, we had to always advocate and fight. So now the money follows the child, and we're going to continue to advocate that this be expanded for all kids, whether it's public charter, traditional, you know, our homeschoolers, our private school folks and parochial schools and so forth. If we're truly about the kids and about putting kids first, then we've got to be about expanding those opportunities to everyone. And that means all. And once and once you do put kids first and South Carolina is moving that direction quickly, there's no way the, the establishment politicians or the, the monopoly will ever be able to take that freedom away. Because once parents get a taste of education freedom, they fight really hard to keep it. Uh, the, the hardest step is is getting that first step forward. And South Carolina is already on has that momentum. Uh, but. Basically, parents become their own special interest group in a way, and they're more powerful than any other special interest in education because parents care about their kids more than anybody else. I mean, look at uh, uh, Florida. The, they get one owes, shot. Yeah, and De, I mean, DeSantis owes his his 2018 gu gubernatorial victory to school choice moms. Uh, his opponent, the Democrat, Andrew Gillum in 2018, uh, was against their private school choice program that was serving over a hundred thousand low-income families at the time. Those families basically became a new voting block for DeSantis because they knew that he would protect 
their right to send their kid to a private school. And, and that becomes a number one issue for parents because they just want their kids to get a better life than they had. So so voters who would have uh, historically, based on the statistics, been more likely to vote for the Democrat in 2018 turned out voting for DeSantis. So this is not just the right thing to do. It's a political winner for Republicans in particular. Look at what happened with um, the superintendent race. You just mentioned uh, Ellen Weaver. She destroyed the teachers union candidate in the primary. I want to say by like 20 or 30 points. It was a total blowout. Yeah, it was a huge and, victory. And I, you know, I go and tout the victories from the American Federation for Children, my, my uh, uh, advocacy group all across the country. We, we won 76% of our races in 2022. There wasn't a red wave or a blue wave, but there was a school choice wave. And you don't have to take my word for it. There was a there was a, a, a left-leaning author in the uh, liberal New Yorker magazine who lamented and partially used as their cover photo a picture of Ellen Weaver. But they lamented in their uh, title and subtitle that, quote, education freedom candidates fared depressingly well in the midterms. So, it, well, one, it just goes to show you that they really don't like parental rights and they don't like freedom. But then, too, it shows you that parents are winning. They've shown up. They're basically the kids' union in opposition to the teachers' union, and the parents have more power. And I think politicians are starting to learn that. Uh, look, Milton Friedman said it best. It's not about getting the right people into office. That helps, but it's it's more about creating a climate of public opinion where it becomes politically profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing. And I think we've reached that cusp when it comes to education freedom that it's become a political winner to support parents and it's become a form of political suicide in some cases to come out against parental rights and education. That's why we're going to continue to win. We've always won the logical battle for education freedom, but now we're winning the political That's battle right. too. And it's all because of parents putting their kids first. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, I tell people this is not a red or blue issue. This is an American issue. Sure. And we should all be able to get behind giving parents the, the freedom, independence, and power to be able to make decisions about their children's education. And I think COVID just helped give parents more confidence and get that empowerment to be able to make those decisions. It's so diverse too what's going on. I mean, this is all families want what's best for their children. Our district grew by 25% for charter schools in South Carolina during COVID. And then we had a lot of naysayers said, oh, you're going to see attrition. Families are going to go back to the traditional school down the street. You're going to lose all these kids. I'm like, no, we're having record numbers of new charter school applicants. We're now the sixth largest school district in the state, second largest if you put us and the other statewide charter school authorizer together, and we're not seeing any loss. In fact, we're not even seeing attrition when it comes to teachers, and we can't pay our teachers as much as our friends down the street, but it goes to show that it's not always about money. We get less money, but we're outperforming on the state report card statewide in ELA and math. We saw the dismal numbers last week in the NAP national yeah. report card on civics and U.S. history. We're outperforming our counterparts when it comes to that here in South Carolina. Families want what we're offering. And just like they have with, like you said, grocery stores, department stores, retail, online shopping, whatever it is, people want choice. They don't want to be boxed in. 
That's right. I mean, even with higher education, we have Pell Grants. And there's a, there's a private scholarship program in South Carolina as well. The money follows the student's decision with higher education. And the left kind of supports all, all of those programs. Same thing with pre-K. I believe South Carolina has a state pre-K program too. The parents can choose their yep. pre-K provider and the money follows the parent. All we're saying here with school choice is to apply that same logic to K-12 education, to the in-between years that we do with food, that we do with higher education, with pre-K. And it's fine. I think people are finally getting it in South Carolina and elsewhere. I mean, this is such a no-brainer policy to allow the money that's meant for the child to follow the child and not go to one particular institution. And the great part about all of this is if you like your public school, you can keep your public school. For real and like with your doctor, you can actually keep your public school. They actually get better in response to competition. And this is good for teachers, too. You you mentioned it quickly there, but there is also evidence that private and charter school competition. There's only five studies on the topic, but they all find some evidence that private and charter school competition lead to higher salaries in the public school system because in the current scenario without competition, they have no incentive to spend money wisely. So it goes towards administrative bloat. It goes towards uh, just putting more people into the buildings. But that means less money for teacher salaries. And once they get some competition, they start to inject more of that funding into the classroom towards the teachers. So it benefits teachers. I've summarized these studies at a, on a blog at the Washington Examiner called School Choice Benefits Teachers Too. But then also for the other reasons that you mentioned, more autonomy, less red tape, their hands aren't tied. And also just being at an institution that's aligned with your values as a teacher and where you could have the, the discipline policies that that uh, are aligned with how you want to run the school, too. I mean, there's so many reasons why competition in the labor market also benefits the employees. I mean, monopolies are bad for customers, obviously, but monopsonies in the labor market are similarly bad for the same reasons for employ employees. So. Uh, we've seen this benefit parents, students, and teachers at the same time. I mentioned earlier, this isn't a battle between public versus private versus charter versus district versus homeschooling and, and which system's the best. It's also not a battle between teachers and parents. It could be a battle between teachers' unions who don't really advocate very well for teachers in the public sector versus individual parents. It's all of us on the same side. And the evidence bears that out as well. This benefits the public school system. It benefits the kids that remain in those schools. It benefits the people who have choice, obviously. And it also benefits the employees who have an additional layer of choice as well. I mean, another benefit of COVID was that a lot of teachers left the public school system for micro schools. I mean, they had smaller class sizes. Some of them were making more money. It's and but then also just having the freedom and, and the charter school system allows for additional autonomy as well, uh, which I think a lot of people are seeing not just voting with their feet to these institutions, but there's a reason parents are voting with their feet to to charter school institutions all across the country. We I've seen the growth in South Carolina, but also nationwide, there was a significant, I believe, like a 7% increase in charter school enrollment relative to pre-pandemic levels, whereas the district schools lost about 3%. About a million students left the public yeah. school system nationwide. And parents, I think you're right, they're, they're, they're sticking to the options that they discovered because they like them, and they're, and they're not switching back. 
Yeah, a couple of thoughts on some things you said, because I'm a big believer in competition. Prior to getting into education, I worked in business, I ran a business, and you talked about the competition and how charter schools and actually were intended to actually help improve right. through best practices and innovation, demonstrating how autonomy in the classroom could benefit our traditional school partners. I've got an example of that. So we've got a brand new charter school, second year in operation, Liberty Steam Charter School in Sumter, South Carolina. It's located adjacent to Shaw Air Force Base, which is a very important Air Force Base here in the United States and in South Carolina. I recently went to their board meeting where they had their lottery, and they had this big electronic board up that showed where all these families were around the world, not just South Carolina or in Sumter, South Carolina. And so they had 270 openings, but they had over you know twice as many applicants for those seats. So they did the lottery, and it was electronic, like I said, and you could see the families receiving their notice that they had, you know, admitted into the lottery. And there were families accepting them at that moment, that night, all over the world, from Germany to South Korea, Alaska, California, you name it. These were military families that knew that they were going to be stationing at Shaw Air Force Base, but they had heard about the great educational opportunity their child would have at Liberty Steam Charter School. I mean, that was a powerful moment. That same night, and I saw this the next day in the newspaper, the traditional school district board voted to have open school choice in their district for the first time ever. That's the power of charter schools because right. that school district saw what was going on at Liberty Steam. They saw what families wanted, and they said, you know what, we want to give our families a dose of that as well. Mm. So that's just one example of the power of choice and charter schools here in America. So, Corey, another interesting thing you, you talked about was how the traditional school districts, you know, they get to keep the money when a child leaves and comes to, let's say, a charter school. And I experienced that firsthand. So I used to be the school leader at charter school up in Greenville, South Carolina, and we wanted to transfer our district to the South Carolina Public Charter School District back in 2017, and we did that. But I'll never forget when the Greenville School District had their board meeting, they cheered when they approved our transfer to the state charter district, because they knew at that point they were going to get to keep all the local money and that we would not be able to take that with us. You know, so our we have no tax and authority in South Carolina. We don't get any mm -hmm. of the local money. We get no money for transportation, no money for facilities, but we're still able to outperform with less dollars. And it, it goes to show you that having that autonomy, having a focus on innovation, making more personalized learning in the classroom for kids, making it, it's not cookie cutter. And so that formula works and it's been working for years and we see it in the data. Is that what you're also seeing around the country, Corey? Yeah, it's it's typically the case that charter schools receive significantly less funding than the traditional public schools. I've done studies on this every couple of years with the University of Arkansas. My latest one finding that public charter schools across the 18 major metropolitan areas that we looked at received about 30% less funding per student relative to the nearby students in the traditional public schools. So, And we find that the performance tends to be about the same or better, implying a positive uh, return on investment for taxpayer dollars. So it's true that you know uh, charter schools typically perform about the same or better at a fraction of the cost, implying a 
more cost effectiveness. Like that's great. That's a great argument for charter schools, but it doesn't mean that it ought to be that way. That what that's basically saying is that the same child, if the traditional public school doesn't work for them for whatever reason, they lose and their family loses a significant portion of funding up to 30% and even more in some places just because their residentially assigned school didn't work for them. No, every kid should be valued the same amount regardless of the type of institution that works best for them. If that's a traditional public school, great. But if not, you should be able to take all of your children's education dollars to the private or charter school of your choosing as well. So the, the charter school shouldn't be punished for that. The kids, more importantly, shouldn't be punished for that. It's like, yeah, sure, they they, they do a better job at a fraction of the cost and, and they're, they have more autonomy and they're more innovative, but it just doesn't rub me the right way if we come at this from a lens of the money belongs to the kid and their parents. What you're doing is, is shortchanging them just because the, the traditional school uh, failed to meet their needs for for whatever reason, and I think there's ways to remedy this through through the state law. I mean, even with these ESA bills, it's typically yeah just the state portion that follows the student. You could write us a bill, and I haven't seen this implemented anywhere, but there's been a proposal in New Hampshire. Uh, it didn't pass through both chambers, but you could write a bill to additionally allow the local dollars to follow the student. And it could either be a local opt-in that the dis the district has to agree to allow that to happen, but um, you would first start at the state level to say, we're going to allow this in our state, allow districts to opt-in and allow the funding to follow the student to the private charter or homeschool of their choosing. So it'd be interesting. I think that's the next frontier in school choice advocacy. I mean, we're winning all across the country as far as the state dollars go in red states in particular right now. But once that happens, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, just, okay, just imagine if you were using food stamps or, or just your own money out of pocket and you wanted to stop shopping at Walmart and you wanted to start going to Trader Joe's or, or some other provider of the service and Walmart got to keep half your grocery funding each week. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. It would be a good deal for Walmart. It's similarly a great deal for the public schools right now. But that doesn't make any sense. They shouldn't get to keep your money for, for, for the services they're not providing. And you shouldn't be forced to pay both institutions. The money should follow your decision to the new provider of the service. And then if Walmart gets your service again, then it should, should follow based on those decisions. But in the current school system, the way that the funding formulas work, it's not, it's not very rational. It ends up being a huge win for the public schools, which is it's so funny when, when you hear the screeches railing against uh, education freedom from the superintendents or, or what have you in the in the traditional school system. They'll say this is going to destroy the public schools. Well, no, the evidence doesn't show that. And mathematically, this doesn't defund you either. You're ending up with a ton of money for students who are no longer there. And by the way, if you're doing a good job, you should have nothing to worry about. The best school districts, they up their game. They they create the the school choice options like you were talking about within their district. They step up to the plate. And at the end of the day, all this competition leads to better outcomes for parents. It it changes the focus from the system itself and the and the buildings towards the kids. It puts kids first. So it's ultimately we're going to continue winning. We've reached escape velocity when it comes to school choice. It's such a no brainer policy. And the more that we see it being implemented in states like South Carolina, the more other states will follow and the more it'll, it'll, it'll expand within your state as well.
No, absolutely. I'm very hopeful. Corey, I want to talk a little bit about the future of the educational freedom movement. And we talk often around here, like, what's the future of school? And what does that look like? You know, tearing down the four walls, you know, incorporating AI. You know, we've got school districts here in South Carolina that are banning AI. And I'm like, look, we can put some guardrails on this so (laughs) the kids don't do things that they shouldn't. But we should be trying to look for ways to incorporate it. And I've got a charter school up in Greenville, South Carolina, Greenville Tech Charter High School. They're incorporating AI into their learning. But, you know, when we talk about, so we've got this ability with autonomy and innovation to be able to do things differently. What are you seeing around the country? What are some examples of some really cool school models, educational models that could represent what school looks like as we head Mm -hmm. into the future? Yeah, it's hard to have a, a crystal ball to see what the one best way will be. And I, I think there, there won't be one best way. But some interesting things that have yeah. sprouted up is that uh, I mentioned earlier micro schools in, in Arizona. They're, they've been at the forefront. They, they passed the first education savings account program over a decade ago. Uh, and they just expanded it to all students last year. And they have these things called Prenda micro schools where you get five to ten children together in a household, you essentially economize on the process of homeschooling and you get to cut out a lot of the middlemen and administrative costs and fixed costs because you, you're basically using existing homes and you have uh, basically a teacher or guide uh, uh, watching the students all day and, and help them when they when they have questions. But it's it's largely student centered, student driven, uh, seeking out information just like you would uh, before you start kindergarten and after you graduate college, it's yeah. not as much of a lecture format. It's more of you're 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 interested in something could be guided by your parents or the teacher that's in the building, but it's mostly driven by the interests uh, of the child. And and if you think about how you learn, anybody learns outside of school. That's basically how you learn. I mean, today if I want to learn about something, I'm going to look it up on the internet and watch some videos or ask some friends about it or experts in the field. I'm not going to sign up for a, a lecture to figure something out. So I think that that's going to continue to expand in in places that have education savings accounts in particular. These homeschool co-ops are, are very similar. Uh, and then also with more ESAs, homeschooling itself will become more economically feasible as well. But I think the more likely thing to happen is these either homeschool co-ops where you economize on the process of homeschooling or the, the, the micro school, one room schoolhouse kind of thing. Uh, and then also something else that's interested me is kind of the Uber, Uberification of education where yeah. you, ha- you see some of these apps sprouting up where, and, it, and it's largely connected to kind of the, uh, the homeschooling co-op space where you can log into the app and find an educator to teach whatever course you want them to teach or a private tutor and you can link you can connect the demand for education the students and their parents with the suppliers of education and so you can cut costs that way and also uh, it might be more of a gig economy uh, going forward if you think about it this way there would obviously need to be some serious safeguards in place as far as you know perhaps um, background checks for people signing up. And a lot of that can be driven by the demand of the parents too. Parents aren't going to, they're going to want to do their due diligence 
when it comes to making these connections and uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But I think these are some examples of things that, that can change, but then also a lot of people like the, the traditional school model and, and that is probably going to stick around for, for a long time as well. Well, we don't want to see the demise of it. I think we should all be open to competition and help us all be better. I tell all my charter school friends, I'm like, look, guys, we can't rest on our laurels. There's always going to be the next thing in the marketplace, and we want to be the best choice and the best option for families, but there's going to be other choices out there. So we've got to be competitively strong in an open and free market uh, so that parents will want to choose us because... You know, like you said with micro schools, I mean, charter schools used to be the original micro school. But look, all of it's good. All of it's good for families. So here in our last minute, Corey, you're on an elevator and you hop on with some folks and you got a few floors to go. You've got a family there that recognizes you. They've, they've seen your commentary on the news and they're like, Corey, look, straight up, tell us why educational freedom? Because the rest of society's ills result from failures of the education system. You can't undo 13 years of indoctrination or even more if you think about the higher education system and think you're going to fix all these other policy areas when it comes to having a freer society. So it's hitting the root of the problem, in my opinion, to fix the education system or at least to allow parents to have more freedom. And this is it's just it's also just one of the biggest injustices that we force people to take their money to a, a residentially assigned government run institution that we don't do with anything else and it's far more absurd because we're dealing with people's children being raised by other people that disagree with their parents vehemently and that is a huge problem it's why it's why we're going to continue seeing so many wins in this area because it's such uh, it's 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 the, it's an obvious solution. The money's meant for the kid. It should follow them to the education provider that works best for them. And it's a deeply immoral status quo that we have today. Not saying that the people in the system are bad. It's a problem with the one-size-fits-all nature of the system itself. And the only way to fix this mess is not from the top down. It's not with bans or other tweaks to the system from from the government. It's more so from the bottom up, allowing families to vote with their feet so that we can live in peace and so that parents can raise their kids the way that they want. Well said, Corey. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Kid First Friends, that's Corey DeAngelis. He's a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. Corey, I've really enjoyed this. I mean, you're a great educational freedom advocate, school choice supporter, and most importantly to us, a Kids First champion. So again, Thank you for what you're doing across the country to explain and educate people about the importance of educational freedom, school choice, and the ability to give parents the power to make choices that are best for their kids. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Yes, thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, and let me know next time you're in South Carolina. We would love to host you here at the South Carolina Public Charter School District. Cool. That would be awesome. Friends, that's it for the Kids First Podcast. We'll see you next week. When we have another great advocate of educational freedom, join us for a conversation on Kids First. Thank you very much.